Some of you are probably, maybe, asking, why in the world are we spending so much time talking about these five core doctrines of the Reformation? I mean, after all, at the end of this month, it's the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation, which is pretty big. So why are we spending so much time doing this? Well, I want to give you two reasons, real quickly. Two reasons why the Reformation still matters, before we get into grace alone. The Reformation, number one, still matters because your eternity matters. The Reformation still matters because your eternity matters. At the heart of the Reformation was the question of how one could be accepted by God. So are we saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or does salvation come by God's grace, plus our merit, through faith, plus works in Christ plus human priests. Is that what it's about? And how do we know? How do we know that we're accepted before God? Can we know from Scripture alone? Or can the authority of man and the church override the clear teaching of Scripture? These were the kinds of questions that were being raised by the Reformers. And they're the same kinds of questions that we're raising today. They were just as relevant then, and they are just as relevant now. These were questions on how one is saved, and they're no less relevant for us. The Reformation matters because your eternity matters. Salvation is at stake. Number two, the Reformation still matters because Catholics and Protestants are still divided over how one can be saved. They're still divided on those core main doctrines Of the faith. So that's why the Reformation still matters. Understand what I'm saying. I am not saying that we don't have a lot lot in common with Catholicism. We do. We can fight uh, against abortion, just like Catholics, many Catholics do. We have a lot in common with them. But the main things, those important core doctrines, we still differ with them on. Also understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that all Catholics are unbelievers. Okay? That would be insensitive, and that would be ignorant to do that. I am not saying that. As a matter of fact, previous ministry I was a part of, we were doing ministry among uh, in a heavily Catholic area, and we definitely saw Catholics who we believed to be were believers. And so that's not what we're saying. However, the Reformation still matters because there's still a major difference. There are still major differences on the core doctrines of the faith between Catholics and Protestants. And it's not only in relation to Catholicism that the Reformation still matters. The Reformers even went by this slogan, this tagline called Semper Reformanda. In Latin, that just means always being reformed. We're always being reformed by what? The Word of God. Always being reformed by the Word of God. So whether or not we would agree with Catholics on everything and come together and have a huge powwow, or not, we're always still being reformed by the word of God. So the Reformation matters for these reasons, and there are many more that we could give to you. And it matters because your salvation matters. That's what's at the core of this. And so as one who grew to know this all too well, that one was Martin Luther. That's where I want to begin, with an instant in Martin Luther's life that's going to connect us to the doctrine, the Reformation doctrine of grace alone, which is really just the biblical doctrine of grace. 
That's all that that is. These men were not creating anything new. They were only stating what had already come before them in God's word. That's what they were doing. Years 1505, it's 12 years before Luther nails his 95 theses to the castle church there in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther's on his way back to Erfurt. Uh, he's on his way back to Erfurt, Germany, uh, to the university there after having visited his family. On his way back, he gets caught in a thunderstorm. A lightning bolt strikes right next to Luther. He hits the ground and he cries out, St. Anne, help me and I'll become a monk. St. Anne is the patron saint of minors uh, in Catholic faith. And so Martin saw the bolt of lightning as divine intervention. And he kept his vow to become a monk. Well, while he was doing his monkery, if that's even what you call it, he enrolled himself in an Augustinian monastery there in Erfurt and uh, became a monk. And listen to how Luther puts this crisis that he goes through in his life. Listen to how he talks about this. In the monastery, I did not think about women money, or possessions. It said my heart trembled and fidgeted about whether God would bestow his grace on me. For I had strayed from the faith and could not but imagine that I had angered God, whom I in turn had to appease by doing good works. If I could just believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. Luther is questioning how to gain God's grace, how to satisfy God's anger against him because of his sin. And Luther knew that God's holy standard was perfection and that there was no way that Luther could live a perfect life and keep that perfect standard. Luther would eventually actually be freed from this inner turmoil by understanding that Christ kept that perfect standard for him. And we're going to get to that. Uh, In point two, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that grace isn't just a substance or a thing that God just kind of doles out to us when we comply with him. Rather, grace is the gift of God himself that we do not deserve or earn. And that's the Reformation doctrine that we're going to look at this morning, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. So three points right here in your outline. It's in your uh, handout right there. Grace isn't a substance you earn. Grace isn't a thing or a substance you earn. Grace is a gift. Number two, grace is a gift you receive. And then number three, grace applied. Some just implications of understanding grace alone for us today. And that point number three. So I want to begin by considering the Catholic position on grace. Grace isn't a thing you earn. So before we gain an understanding of the Catholic position on grace, we need to look at our understanding of justification. What's the Catholic position on justification? Understand, I'm going to cover justification next week and expound on that a lot more next week when we deal with faith alone. So I'm going to go into more detail next week. But what's the differences between our understanding of justification for Protestants and that for Catholics? In Protestantism, justification is an event. It's an event, a moment in time where God declares a sinner to be not guilty once for all because of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice in our place. Justification is solely a once-for-all act of God in Christ in the place of sinners. 
So we're declared righteous by God when we place our faith in Christ. We're never more or less righteous than when we first believe. We are never more or less righteous in God's eyes or accepted in God's eyes than when we first believe. And he declares us not guilty in that moment. In Catholicism, justification is a long process. This is where you begin to see the merger of justification and sanctification. I'm gonna, sanctification is just the process of becoming more like Jesus. That's all that big word is. Justification is how we're accepted before God. How we can be righteous in God's eyes. I'm going to talk about that relationship next week a lot more. But Catholics believe that we're saved. Or sorry, yeah. In Catholicism, justification is a long process. It's not just a, an event that happens momentarily in an instant. It's a long process that begins at baptism and it continues throughout one's life where God imparts his righteousness to believers in cooperation with believers. So justification isn't solely an act of God, but God and man. And that right there is going to end up being the heart of the Reformation, which we're going to cover more next week. So Catholics do believe that we're saved by grace, just not grace alone. According to Catholicism, the initial grace that God gives for forgiveness of sin actually can't be earned. And it begins with the sacrament of baptism. However, Catholics also understand grace as a power or assistance given by God to help us become more righteous before God. So God gives you this initial unearned grace in baptism to get the justification ball rolling, so to speak. Okay? You're not in that instant automatically justified forever before God accepted and righteous in his sight. It just kind of, baptism gets the ball, the justification ball rolling. And then you become more and more justified or accepted before God on and throughout your life until hopefully, Lord willing, someday you will stand before him and he will declare you righteous in his sight, of which you do not know. Because you're hoping that you would live a righteous enough life in order to get that declaration from God. And so, after that initial grace there in baptism, right? After that initial grace there in baptism, he gives you these graces, these graces throughout the rest of your life that you can earn in order to become more righteous before him. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, we can then merit for ourselves and for others, such as like relatives, the graces needed for our sanctification. Understand, they're going to be merging sanctification and justification. We'll look at that more next week. And so we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification and for the increase of grace and charity and for the, attain, the attainment of eternal life. So eternal life is not something that you receive by grace through faith in Christ alone. Rather, it's something that you achieve according to the Catholic system. It's as if, according to the Catholic system, grace is kind of like a spiritual five-hour energy boost, right? A spiritual five-hour energy shot that God initially gives us to just kind of awaken us and get our spiritual juices flowing. 
However, this grace doesn't guarantee eternal life right then. Yes, you're justified before God, but you've got to work that out in your life so that you can, in the end, get that final declaration over you. But you can get more graces from God to enable you to to earn eternal life through, primarily, the sacraments, which, according to the Catholic Catechism, both contain grace and confer grace on those who receive them worthily. That's coming out of the Catechism. And so then the sacraments are necessary. They're a necessary means of saving grace given to the believer in each stage of life. Okay? So those sacraments, they mimic those seven stages of life, or, well, they have seven of them that mimic the stages of life that you're going to go through. Seven of them are baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance or confession, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and matrimony. Right? And so think about this. Think about what motivates someone in this system. It's guilt. It's not grace. Grace is just a thing given by God to help you perform so you can hopefully earn eternal life. It's actually the cheapening of God's grace when you understand it biblically. It's the cheapening of that grace. And this constant feeling of doubt whether or not you're accepted before God because all these sins that you've committed that only add to Christ's suffering on the cross. It's the constant questioning if whether or not you've done enough. The violation of rule after rule makes you feel guilty and that guilt motivates you to keep trying to keep all the rules so that hopefully, maybe... God will open that gate of eternal life to you. Think about how burdensome that this would be and the freedom that you can actually have in Christ that is awaiting for you, that is waiting for you. If we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then we aren't looking for our works to be righteous before God. We aren't looking to those works to be counted or declared righteous in God's sight. We're looking to the finished work of Christ in our place that makes us righteous before God through faith. We're trusting in the sufficient work of Christ, that he was able to accomplish what we could not accomplish for ourselves. As Luther put it, he is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. If you're accepted before God because of Christ's righteousness, not your own, then your salvation is as secure as Christ is God's Son. That's how secure your salvation is. And I'll get to assurance in point three. It is secure, as secure, as Christ is God's Son. God didn't win salvation for you in His Son to guilt trip you into eternity. And kind of pull you kicking and screaming into eternity. Instead of being motivated by guilt, you'll be motivated by God's grace that moves you to serve him. Not just out of duty, although that is important, not just out of duty, but out of joy and delight in the God who accomplished for you what you could not accomplish for yourself. And so salvation in the Catholic system ends up being a work of God in cooperation with man having to make satisfaction 
for his sin through various good works. And notice the Catholic system's view of man right here. We learn a lot about how someone views grace when we understand their view of man. For Catholicism, man is spiritually weak. But with God's help, that is, his grace, man is actually able to earn more of God's grace through good deeds and so gain and earn eternal life. And so grace ends up becoming a thing or a power that can be earned. A thing or a substance that God just kind of, he just doles out apart from himself for those who earn it. Man is spiritually weak. For Protestants, though, we understand man to be spiritually dead. And someone is saved solely by God's unearned favor alone. And if man is spiritually dead, then man cannot cooperate with God and earn eternal life. Man needs to be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that is solely done by the grace of God in Christ. Man is spiritually dead. We're going to get to that in point number two when we look at Ephesians 2. There's a warning, though. There is a warning right here. You may be thinking that you can't really relate to this system of thinking. Oh, I don't really do that. That's their problem. Right? You may think that you actually can't relate to them. But oftentimes, we can relate to this way of thinking. We do this all the time when we think that we'll be more loved by God whenever we get in the Word today, or if we've prayed today, or we've served today, or we showed up at church today, or we didn't commit XYZ sin today, as if all these things make us more or less attractive to God. It's called legalism. That's what's called legalism. Thinking we can be more or less loved by God because of what we do. By keeping man-made rules. And so as Luther says, sinners are attractive because they are loved. Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. Don't forget that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8. God loved us despite us. We're attractive because of his love for us in Christ. And that's what we'll look at next. Grace isn't about religion, what we can do to get God. It's not about religion, what we can do to get God, but about a relationship, what God has done to bring us to himself. It's not about a religion, but about relationship. Which brings us to point number two. Grace is a gift you receive. So what is grace then? What is grace? Biblically speaking, grace is the unearned, undeserved gift of God himself to us. It is the unearned, undeserved gift of God himself to us. And the difference between Rome's position and the Protestant position on grace is the word alone. As I mentioned a minute ago, Catholics will believe that we are saved by grace, just not grace alone alone. However, we're saved by the grace of God alone, not by any merit of our own, but solely the merits of Christ in our place. His merits, not our own. By that definition, we're not talking about God's common grace. Okay? There are two kind of varying, uh, there are two things whenever we're talking about grace, special grace and common grace. We're not talking about common grace. Common grace just being that unearned, non-saving grace that he shows to all people everywhere, throughout the world. 
whether that be the restraining of evil or whether that be humans just flourishing or not being as evil as they could be. That's just God's common grace to the world. But specifically, the grace that we're talking about is God's special grace or his saving grace. God would not be said to be gracious if there was no sin. He would not, sit, he would not be said to be gracious if there was no sin. As one author put it, grace assumes tragedy. It is because the world is not as it should be that God is gracious. And so grace is God's response to sin and the world. And Jesus embodies that response. He does not overlook sin. He does not overlook sin or ignore it as if it doesn't exist. But he responds to our sin in Christ. So let's look at how Paul tells us how God responds to our sin in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So if you've got a Bible, you can open up to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. If you don't have one, try to look off the person next to you. That or your phone is also helpful. So look with me at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And I want it to be very simple. I just want to walk you through the text. That's it. I'm not doing a whole lot here. Just walking you through this text and letting you see this for yourself. This is not the only place, but it's the only place that we have time to go and to visit in terms of length. Yeah, at length. All right, so Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul likes his run-ons. For by grace, verse 8, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So notice right here in this passage, Paul tells these Ephesian believers and all those in Christ that we're saved. He shows us essentially what we're saved from, what we're saved by, and what we're saved for. Those three things. I think it's there in your handout. What we're saved from, what we're saved by, and what we're saved for. Look at me at verses 1 through 3. What God saved us from. Verse 1. We see that we're saved from death. We were dead. There it is. Dead. Remember that the Catholic position sees man as spiritually weak. The Protestant position argues with Paul that man is spiritually dead. And death is the penalty of sin, as we see in Genesis 2. 
Notice what it meant to be dead right here. What does it mean to be dead? Look right there in verse 2. To be dead means that you follow the world. You follow the course of this world. You follow the prince of the power of the air, a.k.a. Satan. You follow, verse 3, the passions of our flesh. So we're following after the world, after Satan, after our own flesh. Also notice in verse 3, what we were by nature. What we were at our core. The condition that we were born into. We were born as children of wrath. Verse 3, like the rest of mankind. That's just God's word. I'm not making this up. Just showing you in the word. By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So sin brings, actually brings the penalty of death, which means that we're under God's wrath. So unlike Catholicism, which says that we need to make satisfaction for our sin, God satisfies his wrath against us through the death of his son in our place. That's what's called propitiation. Just a big fancy word for stating how God satisfies his wrath for us through his son standing in our place. So as Paul says in Romans 5, verse 9, or chapter 5, verse 9, we have now been justified, that is, accepted before God, counted righteous in his sight, by his blood, that is, Christ's blood, and much more shall we be saved by him, that is, Christ, from the wrath of God. Verses 1 through 3 is just bad news. Paul shifts from us and the evil that we're doing now to God in verse 4 and the good that he has done in Christ. So what were we saved by? Look with me at the next, next couple of verses right here. So verses 4 through 9. Notice the state that he saves us in in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we weren't just spiritually weak, we weren't just spiritually lazy, but dead and unable to come to God. So understand, we're not just laying there on a hospital bed waiting to get healed, necessarily. We're in the grave. <laughs> That's where we're at. We're in the grave. And grace makes dead men and women rise from death. That's what it does. It is powerful. So notice God's work in verses 5 through 6. God made us alive with Christ. Why? Because we were dead. God makes us alive with Christ. God raised us up with Christ. God seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ. And all of this causes Paul to proclaim, by grace you have been saved. So how do you have this salvation? God's grace. He continues in verses 8 and 9. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith, I'm going to talk more about this next week. Faith is just the instrument that grabs hold of Christ for salvation. And this isn't our own doing. Notice what he says right there in verses 8 and 9. It's the gift of God. Even faith is the very gift of God. Not a result of your good works, so that no one may boast. God is the only one who can boast over your salvation. That's it. Nobody else can boast over that. God is the only one that can boast as being the one who can, get, who can save you and give you eternal life. And he accepts us on the basis of Christ's work and not our own. Verse, or, third part of this, what we're saved for. So the purpose for uh, the salvation, the purpose for this. Verse 7 and verse 10. 
So in verse 7, God saves us in order to put his grace and kindness to us in Christ on display for everyone to see. God wants the world to see his grace toward us in Christ. He wants the world to see that. Okay, so how do we do that practically? What does that look like? Verse 10, by walking in the good works that God prepared beforehand for us and that we were created in Christ Jesus for. It's another way of saying that good works give God's grace hands and feet in our life so that others may see this display of God's grace in our life throughout the world. So understand, works are not the basis for our salvation. Rather, they're the result of our salvation. They aren't the root, but they're the fruit of salvation. I'm going to get into all this next week as well, talking about justification and sanctification. So we look to Christ's merit and not our own for acceptance with God. We deserve death and condemnation, but God hasn't treated us as our sin deserves. So rather than give us some moral platitudes in order to earn our way to him, God actually came down to us to bring us to himself. Grace is God's gift of himself to us in his son, Jesus. And this grace was costly. It cost God his own son. It cost Jesus his own life. So that those who are rebellious enemies, like you and I, can become part of God's family. And that is a glorious truth. So friends, you receive God's gracious gift of salvation in Christ by stop trying to earn God's favor by performing good works and rather trust in the work of Christ in your place to give you eternal life. You turn from trying to earn eternal life and trust in Christ's work to give you that eternal life and acceptance with God. All right, so not only does God's grace save, but it also sanctifies us by the gift of his spirit. So not only does it save, not only does God's grace save us, but it also sanctifies us by the gift of the spirit dwelling within us, making us more like Christ. So number three, grace applied. Last point right here, grace applied. So we just saw how God's grace justifies us in Christ's work alone through faith alone. Now I want to look at how God's grace and what that means for our lives and how it sanctifies us. What does that mean for our lives and how does it sanctify us? There's a lot that we could say right here. I just want to highlight three very short things. Number one, assurance. If salvation were based on us, we couldn't have assurance of our salvation. There's no way. We couldn't. Because we couldn't secure for ourselves the salvation that we need. It's impossible. And that's biblically impossible because we're dead in our sins. If we understand ourselves to be dead, then that's going to affect our understanding of God's grace and make it all the more glorious. Because we can't have assurance or security for our faith by anything that we've done. We can only have it in one who is perfect and does the perfect work, the perfect work that we could not do. That we could not do. All right, so that's biblically impossible. Instead, you can know that you're accepted and loved by God not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. And if Christ is your assurance of salvation, then your assurance is like Christ himself. Get this. If Christ is the assurance of your salvation, then your assurance is like Christ himself. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13a. Your eternity 
is secure in him and not you. There's a warning right here. So you've got legalism, thinking that you're more lovable uh, to God by what you do. There's, a, there's the opposite of this, free grace, what we just call free grace, right? God doles out his grace, therefore I can live and I have permission to live however I want. And there's a warning that comes with this, with the freedom and the beauty of God's grace. It's that idea that you can continue in sin because grace abounds. It's the very thing that Paul addressed in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. But to pervert God's grace by using it as a license to sin is to miss the point of grace in the first place. Grace is given for salvation in God's Son and transformation in the Holy Spirit. So as we've heard it put, or as I've heard it put, actually, grace isn't permission to sin. It's the power to overcome sin. Holiness isn't the prerequisite, that which comes before. It's not the prerequisite for grace. It's actually the product of grace. It's what gets pumped out of grace itself. So ask yourself, where are you perverting God's grace by using it as a license to do whatever you please? Is there a sin that you don't want to give up that you would just like to go on committing and just live hiding that sin from everybody else and not confessing it? What sin are you hiding? Are you perverting the grace of God in order to be able to do things that God has not commanded for you to do and that is actually in disobedience to God? Secondly, adoration. The second thing that we see as a response to God's grace is praise and adoration. So if you go back to the first chapter of Ephesians, okay, you get Paul glorifying and reveling in what God has done by giving us all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. So for those who have turned away from striving to gain eternal life and rather have put their trust in Christ's work on their behalf, Paul has great news for you. Ephesians 1, 1, or 3 through 14, Paul lays out all the spiritual blessings that you have in Christ in the heavenly places. And so throughout this passage, he gives the purpose of these spiritual blessings by repeating that they're to the praise of God's glorious grace. So God gives you all of these spiritual blessings in Christ, and what's the purpose of that? It's to the praise of God's glorious grace. So that means that you were made for praise, that the natural response of the heart of a Christian to God's saving grace in Christ ought to be praise to God. That's what it ought to be. So the praise of God's glorious grace, he has given to us what we don't deserve and what we couldn't do for ourselves. So would someone speak about you as one who is characterized by giving praise for accomplishing what's humanly impossible? Would someone speak about you as one who is characterized by giving praise to God who accomplished what's humanly impossible by you? Would they characterize your life by that? Praise be to God for raising me to new life. Right? Though my life may look crummy right now before the world's eyes, praise be to God for his grace for me. You have all that you need in Jesus, whether your life looks crummy right now or it doesn't, according to the world. You have all that you need in Christ, and you can always give praise to God for all that he has done for you in Jesus. 
And so meditate on this passage, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Meditate on it. Spend time praising God for the spiritual blessings that he's given to you. When you begin in prayer, start with praise and then move to petition. Right? Start with giving God praise for all that he's done for you in Jesus. Start by giving God praise for other people and all that God has done for all those other friends of yours who are in Christ. Give God praise that he is the one who makes dead men and women alive. And then pray, petition God, pray to God that he would save your friends and family members who are not believers. Give praise to God. Psalm 22 says that God is enthroned on the praises of his people. There is an infinite number of things that you can praise God for. And so get to praising him for his grace. Sit down and reflect on all those ways that God has shown you grace in his life, in your life, and then give him praise for that. Lastly, this adoration and this praise leads to aspiration. Leads to aspiration. We're motivated no longer by guilt. Instead, now we're motivated by God's grace. God's grace in Christ justifies us and it frees us from the guilt of future. It frees us from the guilt of sin. It frees us from the guilt of sin. God's grace in the Holy Spirit dwelling within you when you come to faith in Christ transforms you and frees you presently from the enslaving power of sin. That's what we call sanctification. There is a difference. This is where you're getting the, the, the kind of muddiness with Catholicism, where you're just throwing sanctification and justification in the same sentence. And so we have freedom in being accepted by God to pursue holiness out of gratitude, out of gratitude for what he's done for you. And so we want more of Christ as the bride wants the groom at a wedding, right? Why do they get married? It's not like, well, so I can... Well, so I'm going to have a, a greater uh, bank account that's going to kind of rise, maybe, whenever uh, we get married, right? You, when you're at your wedding day, Lord willing, if you ever go through that, it's your wedding day, you're ecstatic because you get the bride. You get the groom. And that's what this is for us. We aspire because we're going after Christ, knowing and enjoying him. We get him. We live a holy life out of gratitude, knowing, knowing that we get Christ and wanting more of Christ. That's how Paul in Philippians chapter 3 can look at all the things that he could boast about in his life and says that it's all poop, essentially. It's all dumb. Because it compares nothing to knowing the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how he can say that. Titus 2, 11 through 14 says, and I'm closing right here, for the grace of God has appeared. It has appeared. It is a person. It's not a substance or a thing. It has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. Anybody can have this salvation. Training us to renounce ungodliness in worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The peering of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We can't earn grace, but we can expend effort to receive grace by placing ourselves on the pathways where God's grace flows, which is his word, 
It's, his pr- it's prayer. It's fellowship with other believers. And the point of doing so is knowing and enjoying Christ. That's why we do it in the surpassing worth of Christ. You receive the gift of God's empowering our actions by doing those actions. They don't gain you eternal life or acceptance before God. Rather, it's the living out of that eternal life that you already have. That's what it is. So aspire to live holy lives. Get accountability around you. Get around other believers. Join a local church. Get to know other believers. Confess sin to them. Love them well. Let them love you well.